Welcome to this episode of Mapping Out Ethereum 2.0 with Christine Kim and Ben Edgington. Join the conversation as the ETH 2.0 Dream Team discuss its live development, its potential impact on the crypto markets, and spotlight major Ethereum news events as they develop. This episode is sponsored by Unique One Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Mapping Out East 2.0, hosted by yours truly, Christine Kim and Consensus's Ben Edgington. Hi, all. It's Ben. Christine and I will be going through your weekly roundup of markets, tech and community related news about Ethereum, Ethereum 2.0, as usual. And today is a very special episode because it is the 30th episode of Mapping Out ETH 2.0. We started this series, ideating for this series way back in January. And I think our first episode was released in February when we had Will Foxley on as a co-host. Will Foxley was a former tech reporter at Coindesk. And at the time, we were only greenlit for five episodes. The idea was, let's see how these five episodes perform and, and the kind of traction that they get. And if anything, we'll see how they go. The five episodes were a hit. Thanks to everybody who is listening and um, showing us their support and, and sending in messages, letting us know how much they love the series. And here we are 30 episodes later. We've come such a long way, Ben. It feels almost grown up, doesn't it? 30. <laughs> I haven't been with you for that whole journey, nearly, and it's been a real privilege. I think it took me a while to get used to the idea that I'm a podcaster. <laughs> it's a bit weird, but uh, it's been great. I've loved presenting this with you, Christine, and with Will back in the day, and with uh, Teddy and, and others. It's, uh, it's been a terrific experience. And we've made it into something really special, I think. Like the first, I think in a couple episodes ago, we shared that our podcast was in the top 150 of the news segment of Apple Podcasts. And in addition to this being the 30th episode of the series, I do have some not so exciting news, but I guess kind of exciting news, but also kind of sad. It's also going to be the last episode. This is going to be the last episode that Ben and I co-host together because I am moving on from Coindesk to pursue new opportunities. Yes, this show, Mapping Out ETH 2.0, has been the longest running podcast series at Coindesk that I've had the pleasure of posting after, you know, minor perspectives, ETH 2.0 developers' perspectives. These were some of the other shows that I had hosted in the past, but this by far has been the longest running. And I owe the success of Mapping Out ETH 2.0 to you, Ben, my fabulous co-host and our show producer, the always patient and encouraging Michelle Musso. From brainstorming show topic ideas, interviewing guests, writing scripts, and so much more, I've really learned a lot from this experience and have been so overwhelmed with the amount of support Mapping Out ETH 2.0 has received. Yeah, made me a little bit more confident in just creating creative ideas around communicating and educating people about Ethereum. So I don't want to get all sappy and go on and on about this show because we've got a show to do. I mean, we're still going to do markets, tech, and community today. So we got to get the show on the road then. Before we get to that, I do want to say that not 
only have you become my favorite crypto reporter. You've also become a friend, Christine. I really appreciate your in-depth research, your integrity, your fairness in reporting. You don't shy away from critique when things need criticizing, but you always do it in a fair and reasonable way. And I've very much come to respect your reporting and your approach, and I'm going to miss you greatly. I'm going to miss you too, Ben, and this show. <laughs> keep in touch, keep in touch, keep writing. Stay part of the Ethereum world, Christine, please. For sure. Thank you so much. And oh, gosh, this is going to be such a hard episode to get through, but also so exciting because, you know, as transitions come and go for people in the crypto industry, moving from company to the, to the next, the news cycle just does not stop. Like, while this is happening for our show, Ethereum and Ethereum community development, protocol development continues on at lightning pace. So we got to break down some of the news for our listeners today. What's on the agenda, Ben, for our market segment? Right. Today, we are going to talk crypto punks. You know what a crypto punk is, Christine? It is a very popular non-fungible token series. Am I right? You are right. Uh, it's kind of... OG. They've been around for a little while and they're just uh, little bits of uh, art generated, you know, automatically depicting various kind of crypto punk characters. And they trade for a lot of money these days. And the big news is that Visa has just bought one. They've bought one for almost 50 ETH, which is $165,000 for their collection of interesting financial artifacts that they uh, curate. Yeah, what do you think of that? Do we know if they've ever made other purchases similar to NFTs before this announcement? I haven't heard of anything. I, Visa have been involved in crypto for a long time. They've dabbled in uh, crypto things for at least five or six years. Uh, I do know that. Interestingly, I mean, buying a, a crypto bank, there's nothing kind of more crypto than that, right? I mean, it really is a crypto native, which is, I think, the really fascinating thing about this one. They've sort of, you know, gone full in, all in on the crypto stuff with this. What, what have you heard about this? I heard that, you know, when they made this purchase, it wasn't so much an investment decision as in they thought that crypto, this crypto punk NFT would grow in value two times, three X over the next however many years, rather than being an investment decision by Visa, it was really Visa experimenting with NFTs, wanting to learn more about how they work, how to buy them, what the marketplaces for them function like, how to trade them. And Visa's head of crypto, I hope I'm saying his name right, Kui Sheffield. I hope I'm saying that right. Apologies if I'm not. But Visa's head of crypto said that Quote, we think NFTs will play an important role in the future of retail, social media, entertainment, and commerce, end quote. And I thought that it was such a cool thing to see that as much as you can read about crypto, research about crypto, and write about it, unless you're actually using the technology and getting your hands dirty, so to speak, with using digital wallets, purchasing your own NFTs, sometimes you don't truly get crypto. And so I think this is a very important part of Visa's experimentation with NFT technology. Well, no, when they've gone uh, fully uh, crypto degen, when they change the Visa logo to be their crypto punk, you know, everybody on Twitter is putting their crypto punk as their uh, profile picture. That'll be the moment. <laughs> and, and the Pudgy Penguins. There's oh. also a very popular NFT series that 
many people on crypto are changing their profile pictures too. And they're these adorable, adorable fat cartoon penguin. Everybody loves a penguin. The interesting thing, NFTs are hot right now. I read that after Visa announced that they'd made this purchase, a hundred million dollars worth of crypto punks were traded within 24 hours. So it really uh, set things on fire. Wow. People had said that the hype for NFTs was going to pass after Christie's auction with the artist Beeple. And here we are several months later from that point, and the NFT hype still does not show signs of abating. So this seems like a trend in an industry that's here to stay, similar to DeFi, which back in 2020, again, was going through such an extraordinary rise. NFTs, not dead yet. It's interesting. We talked about this quite a lot uh, in the past. They just seem to be getting traction. People are just getting it. And it's a little bit different world from the one that, that I live in, but I see these things going crazy and I'm starting to understand. Very, very interesting. Keep an eye on NFTs, people. Yeah. And if you want more information about NFT regulation and how lawyers are looking at NFTs, I highly encourage you guys to take a listen to our episode two weeks back with Sean Griffin. He is a cybersecurity lawyer who specializes in NFT cases. And that I thought was a really good conversation. Agreed, agreed. Well, moving on to our tech topic for today's show, the ETH 2.0 beacon chain saw a very mysterious dip in validator participation rates across the network on Friday, August the 20th. It had appeared that some validators were missing out on attestations and being slightly penalized for their lack of activity. Ben, what the heck was causing this issue on the network that kept me up on a Friday night? <laughs> Sorry, but it's always Friday night, right? I don't think we would even have noticed this had not the beacon chain just performed perfectly. So the beacon chain performs almost all but perfectly nearly all the time. So when we get a slight bit of turbulence, slight degraded service, everyone goes a little bit crazy. So it was not at all significant, but it was quite interesting what was going on there. Let's see if I can explain fairly simply. So validators make votes, we call attestations, on what they see as the state of the network. So we've got 200,000 plus validators currently. Every six minutes, they're all voting on what they see as the state of the network. And these votes need to get into blocks on the beacon chain uh, in order to, for validators to be rewarded and for those votes to be recognized. And normally that happens very smoothly. But on Friday, various people noticed that votes attestations were getting lost. They were not getting into blocks. Now, this can happen. You know, I run my own node. And if the network goes down or my ISP is causing trouble, then I will lose votes and they won't make it into blocks. And that's just an isolated local issue. It's my fault. I need to fix it. What was interesting on this occasion was that this was being seen everywhere. Every client, every staker, services, individuals were all seeing this slight increase in missed attestations, votes getting lost uh, on the network. So it seemed like a network level issue, which we, we haven't seen before. Yeah, so it was interesting to find out why. I raised the alarm with the other devs Friday afternoon, our time uh, in the UK, and uh, Brains got to work and started analyzing the network and uh, trying to find the root cause. First of all, how long did it take you guys to find out that the reason why this was happening was really because of one staking as a service provider? Like, was the sleuthing to kind of go back in the history of the chain to really isolate the cause of it to Lido, that staking as a service provider, did that take longer than you expected? 
think once we'd realised the issue was sort of network-wide, it was pretty quick. The problem is you get sort of isolated reports and you think, oh, you know, somebody's validator's just not running well or their internet connection's not good and so on. But when you start getting reports popping up all over the place for all sorts of different clients and things, then you think, okay, network level issue, let's look at the network. So I think it was Nishant from the PRISM team who noticed that a lot of blocks over the previous 12 hours were getting orphaned. Now, this is a technical term. Uh, basically, it means the proposer, the validator, had made the block and published it to the network, but for some reason, it didn't become part of the chain. The chain was not building on those blocks. That usually happens when uh, blocks are published late. So the, these blocks were getting ignored. They were all coming, it seemed, from one source. So it was, uh, and this is on-chain information, I'm not spilling any secrets here. It was one of the Lido pools, uh, one of the providers they use, and they were running Lighthouse client. So the Lighthouse team uh, reached out to Lido and they were able to fix whatever was misconfigured. I, I don't know what it is yet. Uh, Lido have promised a post-mortem, a review on, on this this week. So that should come out soon. And they fixed that and, and the problem went away. But the underlying cause was kind of why would one operator being slightly late in publishing their blogs, why would that cause a network-wide issue? And the reason's really quite interesting. There is limited space in blocks to hold votes or attestations. So there's a cap of the number you can pack into a block. Normally, there's room to, to put them all in. With these orphan blocks, that reduced the overall amount of space in blocks to include attestations. So basically, when other clients came to make blocks, they were overflowing, they had to spill some attestations, they never made it on, onto the chain. So that was our first thought, and that kind of is a partial explanation, but it wasn't really enough to explain the magnitude of the loss of attestations we were seeing. So we, a little more digging went on, and it was discovered that the PRISM client, the PRISM team identified that they hadn't quite implemented some logic correctly. So what you're supposed to do when there's an orphan block, so this block contains some attestations, then it doesn't make it onto the chain. What you're supposed to do is take those attestations out of that block, put them back into the attestation pool, and then include them later on the chain. Prism wasn't doing this. So when the orphan block came, it just ignored the attestations. It never requeued them, and they would never make it into blocks. This was noticeable because Prism is a dominant client on the network, so it was making most of the blocks. And so attestations were getting thrown away and not included uh, in subsequent blocks. So th this is now fixed in, in Prism and the other clients were, were, were doing it right. We shouldn't see an incident like this again, but <laughs> there's always something. So when orphan blocks are created on ETH 2.0, now with the fix that Prism has implemented, we shouldn't see validators en masse missing out on their attestations and missing out on their rewards. Is that right? That is correct. You can never assume too much. There are ways the network can kind of degrade and go wrong so that attestations don't always make it into blocks. But uh, normally we run at a, a rate of 99% uh, plus of attestations make it into blocks. And that's kind of regarded as normal running. In fact, less than one in a thousand tend to go astray that, that, that are published. So when we saw like one or 2% going astray, this was a huge increase. Yeah, I mean, I will say I'm still very impressed that the network participation rate of Ethereum 2.0 maintains its 99% success rate, which is quite incredible after its launch in December. So that's like more than nine months now. You know what, Christine, it turns out people like money. And if they don't maintain their nodes, they lose money. And this is crypto economics at work. 
it works. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break in our show right now to hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back after the break with our final community segment and a surprise guest to talk to us about gas limit voting. Stay tuned. There's so many blockchains and NFT marketplaces these days, and none of them work together. Introducing Unique One Network, the easy way to build multi-blockchain DeFi-enabled NFT marketplaces, where instead of picking your favorite blockchain, you let your users and creators pick for themselves. Powered by Polkadot, Unique One Network lets you service NFT creators and collectors across art, photography, philanthropy, gaming, finance, and more. So do yourself a favor and head over to uniqueone.network now to learn more. That's uniqueone.network to learn more. Welcome back, everybody. Joining us for the community segment is Coindesk Research's Teddy Usterban, and we're talking about EGL. EGL. Now, this is something that's come up and caused a bit of a stir in the Ethereum core dev governance community and among miners. EGL is a coin, a token. I think the name comes from Ethereum gas limit, but it's called the Eagle coin for obvious reasons. And this is designed as a kind of alternative governance mechanism for certain aspects of the Ethereum protocol. Uh, and it seems to have divided some of the uh, core dev teams in, in their approach to it. Teddy, what, what are your thoughts about EGL and uh, Ethereum's gas limit? Yeah, hi, Ben. Thank you both for having me on. I have more of a limited, I guess, understanding. I've only been watching it for the past couple of days. But I saw like a couple of client teams like Aragon and Geth were maybe arguing about which side they were taking and whether this governance should be tokenized. My thought is that the higher gas limit, if it keeps getting pushed up and up uh, from people who don't necessarily understand it, like people like me, if I was voting on it, I don't think I'm quite knowledgeable enough to give <laughs> as good of a take as someone like you or someone on the Geth team. So I think decentralization doesn't exactly matter until it does. And that's the ethos of crypto. And this higher gas limit makes it tougher to run a node and maybe takes away from decentralization. But I'd like to hear more from you on that. Yeah, so we should recap this kind of gas limit thing. So I'm getting shades of Bitcoin block size wars here, which actually resulted eventually in the kind of fragmentation of Bitcoin. Now, I don't think that's going to happen here, but there are similarities. So in Ethereum, we kind of have a block size, but we measure it in gas. So this is the amount of work that you can pack into a block. The way this has always worked is that miners vote on how big the block should be. And they can increase the size and decrease the size within some, some limits just by, by voting each block they produce. And that's always been the mechanism. And generally, they have followed guidance from the core devs. So when the core devs have said, we feel this is an appropriate block size, the miners have generally followed suit. So we're targeting 15 million gas per block at the moment. But what this EGL token has done, and it's, it's quite complex, and they've put together a kind of crypto economic model they've been working on for quite a long time, is it allows coin holders to vote on what the gas limit of a block should be. And miners who target that gas limit get rewards. They get paid out in EGL. Uh, and this has a value. Core devs, some of the core devs are very concerned about this for the reasons that, that you mentioned, Teddy, because you know now the gas limit's kind of in the hands of non-experts. And perhaps people who are not really aligned, you know, as proof of stake comes, maybe the miners aren't really our friends. They may not act in accordance with the best 
goals of the network. So, you know, vote up the gas limit absurdly high just to make some more transaction fees. But that's not good for the long-term health of the network. So that's kind of where, where we find ourselves. Something I thought was somewhat interesting is the EGL team, the, the team that created the token, like gave a portion of the allocation to themselves. So do they have a bigger say in what happens with the Ethereum network if this plays out? There's definitely a lot of shadiness here. There are quite strong suggestions that the EGL team are not acting in good faith. They obviously would refute this. As I understand it, they come out of BloxRoot or BloxRoute, who are basically a network layer for blockchains that tries to improve communication between mining pools so that bigger blocks can travel faster, uh, and they benefit directly from having bigger blocks. So the suggestion is that they produce this thing basically to serve themselves uh, by encouraging miners to increase block size and so on. Now, of course, they're saying, no, we're just trying to democratize this process and take it out of the hands of this cabal of core devs and kind of, you know, block size can go down as well as up and, and, and so on. Um, but there are definitely suggestions that have not good faith here. And also they handed it out. They airdropped it to certain people and not others, EGL voting tokens. So the, and if you look at their documentation on this, there's a bunch of people listed as people who have supporters who've received tokens who frankly deny any knowledge of it and deny supporting the project at all. So there's definitely some weirdness going on here. I, I guess the last question I have for you is this something that like Binance Smart Chain has tried to achieve scalability, just increasing block size and gas limits. I guess that decreases the ability to run a node and makes it that more costly, but it's easier for the end users to send transactions, get quicker confirmations. So this is the, the eternal trade-off, right? So on the one hand, increasing the block size or the increasing the gas limit allows faster throughput and kind of Binance push that to an extreme. But on the other hand, is not necessarily good for the long-term health of the system because more transactions means more state and those uh, have to maintain and access a bigger state in Ethereum, which is uh, it's not huge, but it's slow to access, uh, which kind of slows down nodes. and that means that only bigger nodes can handle running Ethereum. So your average small staker or small miner or node operator is not able to keep up. So it becomes more centralized. You, you throw off the lower performing nodes from the system. It becomes more centralized and Binance Smart Chain takes that to a limit with like, I mean, 20 nodes on, on the system or whatever they've got. So they can run it really fast because they've got powerful, highly connected nodes, but it's at the cost of decentralization. And that's a cost which you know I don't think Ethereum should pay. And there's also a subtlety here. We always have to set the gas limit for the worst case scenario so that we have to look at what's the worst possible transaction that somebody could send, which might tie up a node for you know a minute or two minutes when it should really be processing the block in, in a few seconds. This kind of thing has been seen in the past with denial of service on Ethereum. The, the really interesting thing is how this has divided the core devs. So on the one hand, we've got kind of like the Geth team and some others who think, who really understand the technology uh, as all core devs do and just hate this idea because they've got the gas limits now in, in the hands of people who don't really understand the issues or have vested interests. But the Eragon team, which used to be Turbo Geth, has come out as an outlier in this. Um, and you know some of their devs are arguing for pushing the block a gas limit to a billion is uh, like 6x what it is now because TurboGeth or Eragon can handle it uh, in their view. But that would only work if Eragon was the only client on the network. 
they a couple of their devs have come out quite aggressively it has to be said not made themselves very popular in favor of this egl process and of really pushing the uh, gas limit sky high in response an eip has been made which would put a hard cap on the gas limit and basically make the egl token worthless so yeah there's a little bit of an arms race going on a little bit of war these are important conversations and sometimes it takes something like an egl to catalyze the conversation and make it happen and, and for people to take it seriously yeah no that was great here and I, I enjoy the conversations taking place in public too like on twitter i know sometimes maybe everything that's said shouldn't be public but at least it gives the community an understanding of what's going on and we love a bit of drama <laughs> that's for I sure i love drama and can i just say that the non-censorable nature of ethereum the fact that anybody can create a token like egl with that kind of incentive structure without asking for permission by the core devs and depending on the community not the devs just depending on the people who are using the ethereum blockchain how much they want to fuel the value of the egl token i mean the fate of ethereum is really in their hands of course as you mentioned, Ben, there is the possibility that a centralized group like the protocol developers could implement an EIP to block that effort. But without that off-chain centralized force, something like the EGL, there's no rules on Ethereum to stop something like that from really taking off and just destroying Ethereum from the inside out. I think that's like very interesting. I, I love the fact that it's possible, something like that is possible. And it will be interesting to see if organically EGL even gains value. Because if the community of Ethereum, I think if they're as responsible and as knowledgeable as they should be, then there shouldn't be need for an EIP to stop EGL from, from growing. Um, but that's kind of my, my idealistic, like if the world was all right, but there's also the high chance that many people are, are in favor of EGL and, and would want it to see it take off. Yeah, especially if they're holders of it. Um, <laughs> definitely helps. And I think Ethereum governance comes down fundamentally to the, the idea that good sense will prevail in the end. It's deliberately not too formalized because if you make rigid rules, it then becomes easier to take over to have a, a governance coup because people know which rules to attack and which to subvert and how to play the game by keeping it deliberately a little vague and woolly you can't really grasp how things go but there's a forum to listen to ideas and ideas can butt heads and, and work out you know what's best i think it's always run on the principle that eventually good sense will prevail good decisions will get made it will be messy it may be unpleasant but we will see things through and we will evade capture of the governance process. Yeah, I'm pretty confident this will fizzle out in due course. I have maybe one final question that kind of relates to scalability of Ethereum. If other teams like F were advanced on the gas limit side as Aragon is, does that not solve scalability, but in the short term at least make transactions faster and cheaper if they all have a similar grasp on the technology? Yeah, so we have sort of two ideas of scalability. We've got linear scalability, where you just get a kind of small constant factor speed up. So we make the blocks six times bigger. Basically, we can fit six times as many transactions in, in a block because of supply and demand, the, the price per transaction goes down. 
And then you've got this kind of quadratic scalability, which is what roll-ups and sharding offer, whereby you, for effectively the same power per node, you kind of get the n squared transactions. So take the number of transactions and square it. And then that's the new capacity of the chain. And quadratic beats linear every every time. So the end goal is to get to sharding and roll-ups and, and scale that way. But having some layer one initial scalability doesn't do any harm uh, as long as it doesn't harm decentralization. So people can run nodes on low power equipment that it, you don't need a big iron to run the blockchain. That's where we draw the line. Okay. That means that with once proof of stake is enabled on Ethereum, I guess, early 2020, early 2022, this whole debate and conversation around the gas limit and deciding, you know, how high the gas limit should be, it shouldn't be quite as pertinent an issue then, right, Ben? I think it all carries over, you know, Christine. Zelda will have to decide how big block should be. The current model is to carry the current gas limit voting mechanism over to validators when um, proof of work is switched off and, and we're on proof of stake. So this remains live unless this EIP gets adopted that uh, basically caps the uh, gas limit. So we'll see. All right, never mind. So proof of stake is not yeah. is not going to be helping this debate, but sharding will. That quadratic scaling model will, but that comes way later. Not as near term as proof of stake. Well, that's it for the show today. Thank you, Teddy, for joining Ben and I for the last episode of Mapping Out ETH 2.0. You, Teddy, have been a very big help in writing up all our podcast summaries and our notes for the shows over the last two months. And I believe that you have some exciting news about what you're going to be doing after your internship. Yeah, I finished my internship at the end of this week, and then I'm coming out of Coindesk as a full-time research analyst. So I'm really excited about that. And I am sad to see this podcast ending. I've learned quite a bit. I went just from being interested in DeFi to really understanding Ethereum more at a protocol level. So thank you, Christine and Ben, for that. I really appreciate it. Hey, huge congratulations, uh, Teddy. So Coindesk should be happy to have you, should be proud to have you. You've done great work. Thank you very much. Yeah. I mean, Teddy, do you have an idea of some of the major projects and like responsibilities you're going to be taking on as full-time? I have one pretty exciting one. Um, <laughs> I get to take over one of Christine's main projects and that's her newsletter valid point. So I'm really excited for that. Excellent. I had that's no great part news. in this. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I had a very big part in this, but it's because I am so excited to see you take on that project. Yeah, I agree with you. This podcast has been so much fun such a big part of my week. And Ben, it again has been such a pleasure hosting this series with you. I'm really going to miss our weekly conversations on Ethereum very, very much. Likewise, Christine, best of luck. Keep in touch and I will look out for you in the cryptosphere. For our listeners, if you liked listening to Ben and I's weekly conversations about Ethereum, if you enjoyed mapping out ETH 2.0, please let us know by giving us an email at podcast at coindesk.com. In the meanwhile, you can keep in touch with all of us, with Ben, Teddy, and me on Twitter. Our handles will be in today's show notes. Also, uh, you can still subscribe to our newsletters. I write every other week, What's New in ETH2, which you can find at eth2.news or follow me on Twitter. And I'll let you know when the next one is out. And as we've just heard, Coindesk's newsletter, Valid Points, will continue under the careful curation of Teddy 
uh, coming out every Wednesday, and you can find that at coindesk.com. Thank you for tuning into the last episode of Mapping Out ETH 2.0, Ethereum as it was meant to be. Goodbye, everybody. You've been listening to Mapping Out ETH 2.0, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. This final episode featured Christine, Kim, Ben Edgington, and Teddy Oosterbaum. This podcast has been produced, announced, and edited by Michelle Mousseau with music by Tide Electric. If you've enjoyed the show or have any comments, let us know by sending us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com. And for all of us at Mapping Out ETH 2.0, thanks for listening. <laughs>